thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler. And each week, I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. When the UK Jewish leader, Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner, spoke on the Wolf Institute video, The Covid Chronicles, broadcast at the height of the Covid pandemic, She didn't mince her words. We also have the question around Haredi communities, strictly orthodox communities, or radically orthodox, I think is probably a better description, um, fundamentalists, who were together at the Jewish festival of Purim when they shouldn't have been. And there have been numerous funerals and weddings of large gatherings. And that has had its knock-on effect, unfortunately. That there was a reluctance to follow government guidance in strictly observant Jewish and Muslim communities was one of the anecdotal tropes of lockdown chatter. Hence, the high infection rates in these communities, it was argued. And it didn't stop there. There was a tendency towards vaccine scepticism in these groups. More plausibly, there was the close-knit nature of multi-generational households in which these communities live and the high numbers working in frontline jobs, whether in the NHS or as taxi drivers. Such assertions might help explain the high COVID rates amongst Jews and Muslims, but was there any truth in any or all of them? What we normally do in these circumstances is call on the statistical expertise of Dr. Julian Hargreaves, Director of Research here at the Wolf Institute, and ask him to crunch some numbers. Julian's been leading an investigation into the impact of COVID-19 on British Jewish and Muslim communities, and the results will be published shortly. But he's with me now to spill the beans. Joining him is Dr. Shema Hassan, a public health expert who's been conducting her own research on the effects of COVID on Muslim communities in the northwest of England. Julian, picking up from the clip, tell us about your research. 
Just to set the scene, I suppose, the clip offers a very negative account of a faith community. And whilst there were numerous negative accounts across the media, both national and local, I have to say that there was also a lot of very positive accounts about the fine work done by rabbis and imams and members of of clergies. So I think when you take the media as a whole, you might say that actually there was quite a balanced picture overall. I know the BBC were very keen to celebrate some of the good work done in faith communities. And I know here at the Wolf Institute, we also did, we published work around some of the great work done in faith communities. So there's a sort of a mixed picture. What I wanted to do in my study was to take some of these descriptions of faith communities and test them using statistical methods. But I'm very pleased to be speaking alongside Shema Hassan during this podcast. And uh, it's a great privilege to be on a panel with her. I know Shema's work looks at the more qualitative aspect. So I used a survey to ask questions to British Jewish people and British Muslim people, and I compared them to a group from the general population. I completely agree with everything that you said in terms of the media and the reflection it had is specifically on seldom heard communities such as the Muslim community and the Jewish community. Often the ethnic minority groups are put under one umbrella. Um, However, they're diverse in their culture, traditions, languages and ethnicities. So it was important for us to actually explore that further, provide a deeper insight into how these communities actually perceive the risk of COVID and how they actually behave toward it, toward the restrictions and how their adherence was. I work for the Arc Northwest Coast Applied Research Collaboration, and my research focused on the Muslim community within the Northwest Coast and exploring their experiences and their perceptions of COVID. Um, and the methodology that we've taken is doing a interview kind of qualitative kind of a approach involves interviews during the early stages of the lockdown, which is since the 23rd of March, and also focus groups with different members of community. And we then we followed on by doing some follow-up interviews just before the complete restrictions were lifted with the community to find out what their thoughts are about going into the concept of the mass testing and the vaccinations programs that are in place. So what did you find out, Shema? The thing is, you mentioned, Ed, about the media, about how there were some accusations to say the Muslim communities were not adhering to government restrictions. They were gathering outside of mosques. This is completely opposite of what we found. What we found is the Muslim community were quite adherent. In actual fact, their faith actually supported the concept of hygiene, supported the concept of social isolation, social distancing. So they took a precaution and a step. They also felt that they had a duty to protect others as well. The only thing with this wrongly accusation to say that Muslims were gathering outside the mosques, because the mosques are considered as a trusted resource of information, not only providing spiritual support, emotional support, and also some points also providing financial support for some people. So that main centre of connection all of a sudden closed down. So people had no prior warning beforehand that the mosque was going to close. These people were regularly attending mosques, I say, five times a day. So people were coming to the mosque to see, okay, what is going on? Why is it closed? Where's the information? And that why the scene that came out in the media made it sound like, oh, Muslims are still gathering outside the mosque. But no, in actual fact, Muslims were just seeking information, seeking support from avenues that they truly trusted, which is avenues such as the mosques. So that's the qualitative stuff, Julian. What about the quantitative stuff that you did? 
Well, the survey data that I collected earlier this year supports much of what Shema has just described. So according to emerging findings from the data, and I should say, given that we're doing this podcast in association with the Naked Scientists, I feel duty-bound to say that this is pre-published work. But the emerging findings support Shema's work. Muslim respondents were more likely to have self-isolated than the general population. And that was the case for Jewish people as well. And they were no more or less likely to have accepted a vaccination than the general population. So this idea that Muslim communities were not adhering to public health guidance is not supported in my, in my recent findings. So then the question is, why are there these anecdotes? Is it simply prejudice or is it the visibility, if you like, particularly of strictly observant Muslim and Jewish communities who tend to wear different dress from maybe other people on the street? What do you think? I think when you consider some of the local and regional journalism connected to COVID, then yes, I think there was... A focus, and still is in fact, a focus on minority communities where that minority identity is visible. We can't deny that we live in a political climate um, that is often impacted by the media that is out there. I mean, if we look at the Muslim population for recent years, they have been projected in a very negative manner. Obviously, this also influences the Muslim individual themselves as well by seeing this kind of projection. I mean, when I was doing the research and interviewing people. Of course, there was a lot going on in the media at early stages of COVID, saying that people from ethnic minorities are highly affected by COVID and they are more at risk. This was a question that I asked to the individuals I interviewed, and to them it's quite surprising. Okay, why is it affecting us the most? Is COVID prejudice? Does it specifically pick on ethnic minority groups? So even though the media was reporting evidence to say that the ethnic minorities are high at risk, but there's no evidence to say what was it, what was the cause of it. It was almost like it was like a blame factor, that they are responsible for this risk, this high risk. So when talking to the Muslim community, they were questioning that. They believed that they were adhering to restrictions. They were actually taking extra precautions. The the Muslim community that I was speaking to actually took the steps to wear the masks before it was mandatory for the masks to be worn, um, buying their own PPE uh, equipment as well. I mean, one of the other things that they were reflecting on, it was the idea of exposure. You know, you had this population that works on private sectors and self-employed where they have their own businesses. So even though they were trying to protect themselves from the risk, there was limitations. So for example, if you had individuals who had their own businesses, wide is that this environment that they're in where they can actually apply the two meter distance, which becomes impossible. And the data I collected back that up completely. Muslim people were no more likely than the general population to break the rules and followed the rules to the same degree, according to the survey. I think what's interesting from Shamer's work is the concerns around the availability of PPE. And what that implies, of course, is a trust in the PPE, a desire to use it, and a trust in the government's messaging around the use of PPE. This thing was accepted early on. I think one of the points that came out of your research, Shamer, is the issue of communication effective communication. So you've mentioned that sort of religiosity and obeying the rules seem to be connected. And you've mentioned sort of social economic factors as well. But what else is going on? 
Definitely in terms of communication, I think that's key, Ed. We had messages come out for COVID from every avenue that you can think of. So you had the government presenting regular updates on what people should be doing. You had the news, you had social media, you had people that were had access to things like resources such as WhatsApp. But what we also need to understand with generations, you know, such as the Muslim community, they are communities that are connected to communities outside of the UK. So they had families abroad. So because the whole world was affected by COVID and the whole world was providing different messages, there was an overwhelming information to these people. So they were receiving messages from the UK. They were also receiving messages from families back home. And there was a conflict. This was more restricted over there. It's not restricted in the UK. And then people had to literally take their own critic and think, OK, what is it right for me that I need to do? Because it was just so confusing, you know, and the fact that we didn't take actions early on, let's say, in terms of, you know, having these measures in place in comparison to other countries. So this confusion was happening to these individuals. And you can imagine the the pressure that they were under. And likewise, when it came to the vaccination programs, they felt that in the UK, they took action in terms of vaccination programs. It was more like uh, very much encouraged people to go and get their vaccinations. However, if you look abroad, because the limitations, especially in third world countries, of having access to any form of vaccinations and also the lack of trust with the government programs had doubts where people were saying to don't, don't do it. Family members were convincing them not to do it and they were convincing each other to do or don't. And that caused some form of delay for, for them to actually go and take action and actually take the vaccine. But however, this is not to say that they did not go for their vaccinations. The majority of people that we spoke to were happy to go for their vaccinations. However, these debates happened within their family dynamics to support them kind of make the decision. So it sounds like communication is both a positive and potentially a negative, of course, if you receive miscommunication. Before we take a break, Julian, I'd just like to ask about your survey. Just tell us a little bit more. How many respondents were there? Do you feel confident that you can go up from that number and make some general recommendations, general conclusions? So the survey was relatively small by Wolf Institute standards, and it was quite a difficult survey to undertake in terms of selecting respondents from British Jewish and British Muslim communities. We had around 400 Jewish people and around 400 Muslim people respond. And we were able to compare those groups to around 1,000 from the general population. Now, for most large-scale public health surveys, this number would be relatively small. But both Jewish and Muslim groups came from nationally representative panels and they were selected at random, which means that whilst a lot of the findings are indicative, we can say a few conclusive things about Jewish and Muslim communities overall. So on the one hand, a fairly sort of small bespoke survey, on the other hand, a fairly decent snapshot of experiences and attitudes within both communities. The importance of talking to the Muslim community and, you know, reflecting on Julian's work as well, you know, the importance of providing local information provision through avenues that people actually trust. So, for example, you know, using faith-based credible, you know, avenues or services such as the local mosques, such as the local imams, you know, the churches, the rabbis, you know, these avenues are trusted by these individuals, even though, for example, the Muslim community were hearing guidance that were coming regularly through, you know, government web pages or local TV, but they were still, again, seeking 
advice from the local mosque just to have that reassurance. Is this right what we're doing? Is this okay for us to do? So it's important to use those avenues um, and provide that kind of culturally appropriate format, you know, whether it's the common language that we use, whether through the familiar leader that is trusted through the community. For example, in Liverpool, we had a, a really nice successful vaccination program where the outreach team actually went to the local um, central mosque in Liverpool and the vaccination programs took place within the local mosque. And the response was amazing because they were there with the community. They were in the place where they felt comfortable rather than tell them to travel somewhere that is not comfortable for them. So it was about really reaching into the community and supporting the community so the community can feel that they are well integrated as part of the society and they are visible. And that's when we were talking about having that visibility is that we're here and that we're responding to your needs and we're with you in, in this situation. I think and that is a beautiful example that happened in Liverpool following, you know, the work that I've done, collaboration with local GPs and how they kind of responded with the local mosque in, in doing so. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Julian Hargreaves and Shema Hassan. And we're discussing research into the effects of COVID and vaccine hesitancy amongst Jewish and Muslim communities in Britain. Anti-vax feelings are, of course, a danger to society as a whole, not just to minority communities. Dr. Heidi Larson addressed this problem in a Horizon magazine article published on the Naked Scientist website. We should take lessons in how to combat negative messaging online from elsewhere in order to tackle anti-vaccination sentiment. We need to bring to the whole social media landscape the kind of rigour that is currently going on around containing hate rhetoric and bring that same lens to reduce the same dynamics which are happening across the vaccine landscape. A stereotype of anti-vax Muslims and Jews developed on the social media. Shema, what were your findings on this matter? And in your work, what level of scepticism did you encounter? In terms of the social media, like mentioned earlier, the information that is provided sometimes can be overwhelming, sometimes it can be untrue, and sometimes it can pinpoint and make the othering of a specific community. And basically it started off when we started talking about ethnic minorities being at high risk of COVID without having an explanation toward that. Why are they at high risk? There was no context to explain the socioeconomical factors that can influence people living from areas of deprivation and so forth. It was almost like throwing the, the blame and saying, here's a community that is might be doing something wrong that is causing the spread of COVID. So it sounds like there's an element of Islamophobia in all of this. That's what I'm hearing in terms of these stereotypes and, and these prejudices. At the same time, your description of this um, vaccine centre in a mosque is a wonderful model, not just for Muslim communities, but for those non-Muslims who are wondering what's going on in the Muslim communities. So actually modelling good practice is equally important. Also, when we speak about having vaccination programmes within local community centres such as a mosque, it's not just for Muslim people. It was wonderful being there at Rahma Mosque in Liverpool and seeing it opening its doors to every single person in the community. So people were coming from the whole area, whether you were of a Muslim background or often not of Muslim background, but it was something local. So if we were to think about addressing health inequalities, one of the inequalities is that we're expecting people from the areas of deprivation who might not have the financial means to catch the bus or get a taxi or get themselves to a testing centre or a vaccination centre. We have this expectation that people might be able to get there. No, but people might not be able to get there. Having something local might address this as well, but also build that trust to say we're part of a community that you are somewhere where you are familiar with 
the faces, familiar with the location, and you don't have to travel outside your sphere. So it really helped to just really push that program through and help people just come and question and ask the imams were there while the vaccinations were uh, happening. You had healthcare professionals who are from a Muslim background as well, who had uh, could answer any of the questions and the volunteers as well. So it was a really, really good approach that happened that supported the, the promotion of vaccination programs. Julian, we focused a lot on the Muslim communities and Shamer, of course, that's where her research is. Your research included both Muslims and Jews. Were there differences between the communities? What can you tell us about that? By and large, the findings for Jewish and Muslim communities were fairly similar. I should just say at this point as well, I think when it comes to trust in various sources of information, I think this is probably one of the points where my own work and Shamer's diverge slightly. Whilst I think Shamer's done an excellent job of capturing at a really in-depth level some of the experiences she's found within the Muslim communities she's engaged with, I think when you take a, a snapshot of the Muslim population overall, and when you take a snapshot of the Jewish population overall, you actually come up with some findings which feel a little bit counterintuitive, actually, given what's been said during this podcast and elsewhere about some of the dissatisfaction within Muslim communities towards the government uh, and the NHS. So just to put some flesh on the bone, if you like, it would appear from the survey I conducted that there was more trust in Muslim and Jewish communities overall uh, in the UK government than was found in the general population. So there were higher levels of trust in both communities. Similarly, there were very high levels of trust in the NHS. Shema touched on uh, this idea of knowledge being shared among networks of family and friends, and she described how those networks are sometimes transnational, how they cross borders. And I don't dispute that for a second. But what I would say is among the general population, there is just as much reliance on information from family and friends. Of course, as Shame has shown, it happens in a different way within Muslim communities, but I would argue it happens at the same level. One area where the Jewish and Muslim communities weren't the same, and this is quite a sensitive topic, and I'm a bit reluctant to, to go there here, but I will, but I'm going to try and handle this as sensitively as possible. I looked at rule-breaking I have to say that there was no more rule-breaking among British Muslim communities than in the general population. But we found slightly higher levels of rule-breaking within British Jewish communities. We were a little bit sneaky in our survey question because we asked, are you following all of the rules? Are you following most of the rules? Are you following some of the rules? And so on. And anyone who was following all of the rules was placed in one column and anyone else was placed in the other column. So even if a person said they were following most of the rules, we took that to mean, quite sneaky, they were breaking some of them. And it was within the uh, British Jewish communities that we found a higher level of rule breaking. I have to say, most people that we surveyed who were Jewish followed all or most of the rules, over 90%. But where there was some rule breaking, we found it most often in uh, Jewish communities. And there might be some explanations for this. We know that Jewish populations tend to be quite concentrated. So it might be that rule breaking was going on in terms of visiting a family member's home during lockdown. 
There were reports about orthodox communities, and we know there was some rule-breaking there. But what I would say is that overall, British Jewish communities were abiding by the rules and regulations during lockdown. Can I add to that as well, Julian? I think it's really beautiful how you kind of reflected on that. And I think it's important for us to understand how faith communities have this connectiveness. They actually thrive through communities. So when this introduction of, you know, having these measures about social distancing, it felt quite alien. I could imagine for the Jewish community, but also for the Muslim community, where the natural norm was to quite be intimate. So when you're, when you're meeting someone, you're hugging them, you're, you're kissing them, you're shaking the hand. Younger generation tends to kiss the hands of the elderly generation. Having this hosting of welcoming people into your homes, this was kind of the norm. Um, this gathering that happens within of spiritual centers, such as, for example, the mosque, where you know, they have the regular prayers. For example, we had in the fasting month of Ramadan, which is considered as a community worship, where you come together and break the fast together and so forth. So this introduction of these rules were quite an alien kind of approach that came to these communities. And we could imagine the difficulties it created that has been created. And I can imagine that is something with the Jewish community because they thrive through this community and the connectiveness as well. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it. I think the discrepancy we see within rule breaking within the British Jewish group feels like a manifestation of that connectedness. And of course, it was a challenge that everybody felt, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic. But that is now not far than two years ago, almost. So I suppose I wonder how much we've learned for the future, for future pandemics. We're told there will be some. I mean, do you feel the lessons have been learned and that particularly the faith communities you focus on will be more effective in responding to pandemics and the customs that need to be modified accordingly? So I do think there are some signposts here to future policymaking around the next pandemic, whatever it is, whenever it comes. There's some good news in my data around trust towards the UK government trust towards the NHS, particularly around health messaging. So that's implied when a respondent says he's been following the rules or when she says, I've been vaccinated. So there's some good news there, I think, for policymakers. I think, uh, I imagine Shamer would probably want to add to that, that there needs to be some consideration for sort of cultural sensitivities and for some messaging to be sensitive towards minority groups. And I would wholeheartedly support that. I think... Uh, This might be a little bit controversial, given the setting here at the Wolf Institute. But I also think there's something we we should learn as researchers about trust in local religious leaders. Now, work done by Shamer, work done here at the Wolf Institute, has often celebrated the work of local religious leaders. And that's right to do that. However, there was higher levels of trust in the UK government than in local religious leaders, according to to my data. And that was among both Jewish and Muslim respondents. And there was a lot lower levels of trust in local religious leaders than we might have anticipated, given the celebratory news stories about imams and rabbis. And I suppose if I was being flippant, I would say that the data perhaps remind us that people of faith are citizens too, and that Jewish and Muslim people are no less likely to you know, follow guidance from the NHS than anyone else. I completely agree with you as well, Julian. We can't say religious leaders are the beacon of everything, you know, um, especially if you're you're talking about second, third generations of British Muslims or, you know, British Jewish people in the UK. This connectiveness towards the mosque and having the imam as the leader might not be something that is reflective of all, all the generations. So that's why in our research, it's about really reflecting on 
what are these avenues that actually support members of the community, whether it is an avenue that we use the mosque to support a specific generation of the population, whether we work towards being localized, being able to really make the community visible and supporting them in that kind of manner. So when we think about the future, it's about thinking, what have we learned from COVID that some of the issues that we've done? So, you know, early responses, linking with communities, providing local support to local businesses, local guidance, working with community volunteers who are already doing the job. They're really embedded in the community. Healthcare services need to come into the community and support those local people are actually doing the work. So it's basically us linking and bridging this bridge between us and supporting this process. To me, that's the learning that we go forward if ever, God forbid, that we have a, you know, a major pandemic like we had with COVID. But it's these steps that we need to take into consideration. There we must leave it. Thanks to my guests, Julian Hargreaves and Shema Hassan. And thanks to you too for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource with topics ranging from climate change to COVID, from quantum theory to nudge theory. You may also want to check out the other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more bracing discussion and some new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.